Hi, my name is Evelyn Hartz, and you're listening to The Patagonia Problem. This is a really fun episode. I got to chat with Ashlyn Stansberry, founder of Because Intelligence. Ashlyn is for sure a go-getter. She's a 20-something female founder who's on a mission to help small and growing consumer brands tell their stories better, especially as it relates to the social and environmental causes they support. In this episode, we discuss whether having a social or environmental mission is at odds with growing a business. We also discuss the influence of causes on millennial and Gen Z purchasing decisions and how to raise money as a cause-based founder, specifically how to make sure investors don't mistake your company for a nonprofit. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And with that, let's jump right in. How's it going? Good. Well, yeah, thanks again for taking the time today. The name of the podcast is The Patagonia Problem. So if you're familiar with the brand Patagonia, they're to me like the quintessential like do-gooder brand. And they're also a household name. It's very trendy these days to kind of have brands that are sustainable or maybe cause-based, but there's not a lot of brands that have kind of reached that level of like a household brand name. And so I was curious just to kind of get your take on that. Like, why do you, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because it's you know, a kind of a newer trend and that like those companies just haven't achieved that level of growth yet? Or do you think that there's actually some kind of like barrier there where a company that's kind of do do gooder can't grow at the same rate as a company that maybe is, uh, that doesn't have that element? That's, that's a really good question. I love that. Um, I mean, first off, Patagonia is the example that I've used since the very beginning of starting because we're a Boston-based, female-founded tech startup, completely female-founded, funded, branded, coded, trying to push the mission forward that women can start tech companies, not just tampon companies. Um, <laughs> but we've also struggled with the same kind of balance of like, how do we go out and like, we just raised our first round of capital from return-driven investors. We did also have some investors who were more social impact-driven, but we had to go out and really demonstrate that there was a business mission and really an opportunity to drive returns off of a social impact oriented business. But I do believe social impact and sustainable businesses can reach the same level of growth. Actually, one of our mentors is Hap Klopp. He's the founder of the North Face. And he, I've had many conversations with him on this topic. He's dedicated a lot of his life to studying companies who are purpose-driven who, and who have a greater mission. North Face is not known like maybe as well as Patagonia for their sustainability, but it has been a big part of their brand. And he studied many brands around valuation, around profit, around all of those key growth and profitability metrics. And he has seen across the board that the purpose-driven companies are performing higher than the regular companies. I do think there is still very much a perspective among the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, where they kind of view giving back as the nice thing to do. They view it as like what they, they check it off for their tax returns or they do it because their employees want them to. They have a CSR, uh, corporate social responsibility department, like down the hall that no one really views as a core part of the company. We worked a lot with those people and they're super, super underappreciated within the company. So I do think there is that still that culture. I find it in most of the companies who are, you know, over 10 years old, they weren't born in the age of the millennial. So they're still really having a hard time adapting to 
like having sustainability and purpose as a core part of their brand. But I think they're going to really struggle to stay around and to continue to grow over the next 10 years. I think the companies that have sprouted up in the last 10 years, like you were saying, some of them maybe haven't reached their growth potential yet. But even if we look at like Bombas, Rothy's, we've seen so many examples of like these D to C startups that are totally built on purpose. Maybe they're not on Patagonia level yet, but they're headed there, which is really the movement that we're supporting here at Because. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I've kind of noticed with some of these like Bombuses, like the the Warby Parkers of the world, like these Warby like Parker, another good one. Up, yeah, like out of uh, the last ten years, that like some of these companies they've almost opened themselves up to some criticism, whether that's with regards to their mission or just it's almost like they're they're setting themselves up for a higher standard. I, yeah, I'd be curious your take like on like what makes a brand good at the social good stuff as well yeah. as obviously, you know, the the fundamental mandate of a business is they have to make money and like make good returns for their stakeholders, shareholders. Can you talk a little bit more about striking that balance and what you see from brands that have, have done this well? I think it can be very challenging to strike a balance between social impact and growth. One of the things that I try to look out for is whether or not they're actually thinking about cause in their products. Wells Fargo donates over a million dollars a day to charity. They're not a socially responsible company, but they donate a lot of money. So that's one way to look at it. Obviously, banking is challenging. I mean, I know there's like paperless settings and things like that where you can reduce paper. It's hard to, it's hard to integrate into your product. So I'll give them like the benefit of the doubt there. But especially with consumer brands, the brands that are thinking about sustainability and sustainability is just one of many causes, but even like fair trade and, you know, proper rights within the supply chain of around labor and how you treat your workers. Those elements are really, I think, what sets the sustainable companies and the actual good companies apart because they're thinking about sustainability throughout their whole supply chain, how their products are produced, how their products are shipped, how they're packaged, how they're disposed of, all of those different elements that really makes them fundamentally cause-driven versus the companies that just kind of do it as an afterthought and just like, you know, I know Tom's has gotten a lot of uh, pushback, you know, Bombas has kind of copied their model on the buy one, give one, where they're just donating products that people don't really need versus really thinking about cause in their supply chain and in their products. Yeah, that's really interesting. Kind of your company is B2B, like you sell to to small businesses like on Shopify. How do you sort of differentiate like or how do you make it a part of your brand and your 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 messaging? That is a great question and something we're trying to figure out since we're still like in the early stages. And I hear this a lot from brands that when you're early and you barely have anything to give, you're like how do we support causes? But I think that actually does come down to it doesn't always have to be through donating. I'm I'm almost like anti-donating at this point because I feel like it just creates such a reliance on actually not really supporting the cause in any meaningful way. Obviously, sometimes it can be really beneficial, but there's a, it's a cop out. Like there's a lot of brands who just support through donations. So while we might inc- we might start to incorporate some type of like donation or give back model into our revenue model, we're trying to really focus on like systemic issues that matter to us. Obviously one for us that's pretty obvious is women's empowerment, 
were huge on trying to prove that women can be in the tech world, can be kind of in this traditionally male-dominated industry. We've been very mindful about bringing on female and diverse talent. You know, me and my co-founder, Carolina, when we're thinking of bringing on someone for a project or a new role, even if there's, you know, someone in our back pocket that's the easy option, we take a step back. And I, I have to give a lot of credit to Carolina for like really helping me to do this as well. Because sometimes you just want to move so fast. Let's take a step back and be like, okay, who are the other candidates that we could try to, to get involved here? Even if it did take a couple extra weeks or a couple extra months, even if it took that extra effort to really get a diverse candidate into the pool. So that's how we're doing it in the super early days. There's so much more to do. I think the other thing is just really being mindful about the companies that we choose to work with and making sure we're promoting the right types of principles, especially around companies who are sustainable. Like I'll get on the phone sometimes with people and just get the sense that it really doesn't matter to them. And they're really just trying to use us to greenwash. And I'll straight up say, you're not a good fit. Like that's not who we want to be working with. And maybe investors may not agree with that, (laughs) but hey, we got to stay true to our brand. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And like to your point earlier, like you were mentioning on the consumer side, you're saying that there's like a differentiator between companies who bake it into their product. And for you too, like your product itself is meant to support kind of these sustainability initiatives. So can you tell me just a little bit more about your product and um, how you're working with these brands? We actually raised our first round of capital, pre-seed uh, round from angel investors like Launchpad Ventures, um, Boss Syndicate, a bunch of kind of the local angels in Boston and New York, right before COVID. We then launched our initial product right in the middle of COVID. It was such wonderful timing. <laughs> uh, and also Carolina joined us. Um, she quit her job at Drift and joined us full-time literally in the middle of COVID as well. It was like April or May. And we launched an influencer marketing product. It was focused on identifying influencers on social media who were in support of causes, like say someone tweeting about Black Lives Matter, which was obviously huge during that time as well and still is. We would find those people who are talking about causes and we would connect them to brands who cared about the same cause in an effort to kind of do this little matchmaker approach between cause-oriented influencers and cause-oriented brands. One of our biggest challenges was we were working with very, very big enterprise, slow-moving brands that still didn't quite have their heads wrapped around how sustainability and causes incorporated into their brand beyond just like donating. Kind of that, that's one of my biggest uh, challenges and concerns and frustrations with the industry. Um, so that was the product that we launched right in the middle of COVID ran into a lot of challenges. I think one of the biggest was that retail was just getting hit so hard during COVID. And that was the majority of our client base. And we really saw that there was this shift happening that was moving to e-commerce and we wanted to figure out how to capitalize on that. The e-commerce space was uh, definitely new to us. We saw this world of Shopify, which I know you know well. We were like, oh my gosh, there's this whole thriving ecosystem that like I didn't even know existed, especially since we were so laser focused on more of the enterprise brands. So we started to look into Shopify. We found that there was like a million businesses on this platform and that's just Shopify. It's not even including Magento and WooCommerce and BigCommerce and all these other platforms. And we saw that there was this opportunity to help you know, small to medium-sized growing companies, at least to start, maybe expand later, who had a cause, who had some type of real dedication to sustainability or purpose, and were having a hard time communicating that to their customer, mostly because the only real estate on the e-commerce site today is the About Us page 
or the sustainability page that's somewhere on the back of the site somewhere. You usually have to scroll all the way down and you have to go in the bottom navigation to even find it, which today is, I think, just a huge missed opportunity. A lot of our clients are apparel and fashion. Uh, we have baby, pet, you know, cosmetics, a lot of companies that really struggle to compete on just features alone because those markets are so saturated, especially with like the world of Amazon. So our platform essentially offers a library of ready to go, easy to access, easy to plug in elements like banners that add into the core buying journey. All of those elements add into places like the product details page and the shopping cart to help to communicate to the customer how each of those um, individual product purchases that the consumer is considering taking uh, helps to actually create an impact. So if you're buying a pair of sneakers, how does that pair of sneakers actually you know, save sea turtles or help to educate five women in Africa. So that's kind of what we're focusing on from like an impact and almost gamification perspective with the younger consumer base. But really what we're doing for the brand is helping them to add these elements to their site without any code. So these are small businesses. I know you know this world well. They're resource strapped. They're like us. They don't have like all these team members to be adding custom elements to the site, be dynamically updating those elements based on how their impact is changing. They need a platform that's really intelligent to their giving model and that changes over time with their products. So that's really what we're powering from the back end. But our goal is to ultimately measure the impact on conversion and click-through rate knowing and working towards the mission that giving back is not just the nice thing to do, but that is actually a good business decision. I love that. Yeah. And no, I think that, that that makes so much sense to me. And like you clearly are getting some customers engaged. It sounds like you have a growing beta list of, of customers for your, for your launch. Are you like, when you're talking with these customers, are they starting to see these trends on their side when it comes to like, okay, like we, we, we have this hypothesis. We think like purchasing behavior, shopping decisions are being influenced by the causes, but we just want to test it. They're clearly seeing something because it seems like there's a demand there. Can you give me some more color just like in your conversations with these customers? What are they seeing and where are you seeing the biggest opportunity there? Yeah, I think for a majority of, especially our early adopters, these are brands that are so incredibly thoughtful in their cause. It has more recently really shifted my perspective on your question, like, what is a good company? Like, how do you define that? I think that's why my perspective has shifted away from like, just donating and being generous in your monetary donations. Because I've seen these companies, I mean, we have beta customers from Byron Bay, Australia, Ireland, England, Brazil, like literally all over the world, some US companies as well, who are so thoughtful from day one about their entire supply chain. I was on the phone with a sustainable swimwear brand who's joining our beta earlier today who was talking about every single aspect of her supply chain and packaging down to the um, paper cards that get sent in the um, mailers, making sure that, that those are recycled paper, even down to the ink that gets printed on that paper to, to communicate a message to the customer. I mean, that is like a level of detail that we just don't think about, especially in a lot of American companies. So I've personally been very motivated and impressed by all of these smaller businesses that are, you know, anywhere in the one to $10 million revenue range that are being so thoughtful throughout their whole process of how they're incorporating sustainability. And they're doing that because they are hearing from 
millennial and Gen Z consumers, but not only millennial and Gen Z, they're older consumers as well, because we're educating our grandparents and, and our parents. Like I taught my parents and my grandparents how to recycle and why it's important. Um, we're a vocal generation, right? So they're hearing that directly from their customers that they want to be buying from these brands who are being mindful. And it's not just like a donate, buy one, give one. It's a, we are thinking about the ink on our papers. That's how much we're thinking about this process. So yes, they are definitely hearing from their customers that this is important. And I think it's creating one of the most knowledgeable generations in history because customers are finally starting to get this information from brands because brands are finally being forced to be transparent about their factories, about all of these different aspects of their company. Yeah, I love that. I love that insight because I think that like your your issue with the industry or like I almost see it as an evolution. It's like we started with like the Toms of the world and this kind of like buy one, get one model or, you know, give 1% back, like donate, like kind of piece. But that could be at odds with actually growing, right? Like if that money isn't being cycled back into your business, then, you know, it's it's still a good thing to do. It's not a critique of the, the those decisions, but at the same time, like that money isn't isn't getting circled back into the business. And so like, it, it, like I, I see it as almost this next evolution of the products itself like we're not it's not kind of a tacked on thing it's actually built into the ethos not an afterthought yeah yeah, yeah. so that, that's and a really that's the question of how do we help companies who are too late like it has to be an afterthought because they haven't thought of it that's a big question i don't know the answer to that one yet but um i think there are a lot of innovations that are allowing companies who even you know the ones that didn't think about it from day one to start to take a couple steps back yeah, I mean, any predictions for those kind of companies? Like if, we're, if we have this conversation five, 10 years down the road, do you think that some of these cause-based things are going to just be table stakes or like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're already getting to that point. I don't think there will be any companies surviving in the next five to 10 years who at least are not getting vetted on their values of how they treat their employees. You know, I think the fast, fast fashion industry is seriously declining. I don't know about B2B. I'm curious to, we'll have to check out Carol Cohn's report and see more, but I'm not sure how much of B2B, like how quickly they're going to adapt to some of these elements because they don't have the convenience of incorporating it into their product. They have to come up with a more creative model. So we'll see about them. That's always been a question in my mind too, is like how will that, beyond like companies like yours where it's actually kind of baked into your product, yeah. maybe we'll see more B2B companies that kind of have that, that are built to kind of support these, like whether it's e-commerce, like consumer brands or in, in other spaces that are kind of built to help other consumer companies doing it. But to me, yeah, it's a bit of an enigma <laughs> how that's yeah, all going to play yeah, out. Definitely. I um, mean, Salesforce is the ultimate example though of B2B. Yeah, company. that's true. They've like pretty much led the movement on the 1% model. No, Salesforce is a, is a great example. And it seemed like, you know, I read that book behind the cloud and it just seemed like it was just so baked into the, the founders like DNA. Like it from day one. Really cool. Um, and I think it, to a certain degree, it has to be that way. Oh yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree. Kind of thinking back to before you mentioned that you were fundraising earlier this year, how did the fact that you're kind of a, a cause-based founder, how did that influence your approach to fundraising and like specifically how much you wanted to raise? <laughs> Such a good question. <laughs> um, not an easy one. Some of it I just had to figure out as I went because a lot of these answers you don't really know until you get asked them. I think that's the thing about fundraising that challenges your business in such a good way is that it really forces you to answer questions you never would have taken the time to answer if you just bootstrapped. Obviously, fundraising can really slow you down and there's a lot of like 
you know, negative impacts of it as well. But I do think fundraising did a lot for us in just being extremely focused for like three or four months on all of the different areas of the business and just like really thinking through how can we actually make this a profitable business model. I can speak to the experience that I went through and some of the tips that I found to be useful uh, with regards to our old product. We haven't fundraised for this current product yet because we pivoted while we still had a lot of capital left, thank God. Um, (laughs) Hey, you gotta pivot quickly. If it's not working, just switch over. Um, But when we were fundraising for our initial product focus on influencer marketing, but still with that cause focus, I focus the majority of my pitches on the millennial and Gen Z consumer behavior shift, not on the CSR giving shift. I think that was mostly because, you know, I'm catering to a little bit of an older conservative demographic, mostly male in the Boston and New York area. We didn't really raise on the West Coast um, just for our initial round you know, I had to speak their language. So I would ask them like, are you, any of you guys football players or any of you guys like, like football? And they're like, oh yeah. And I was like, oh, so you know, Colin Kaepernick, you know, everything that happened with that. Like that shows how consumer behavior is shifting, how consumers really want to know what brands stand for. They want people to be like, not, not afraid to stand up for what they believe in. And they'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Versus, you know, being like, hey, I'm doing this like give back thing. That's super nice. And it's going to like save sea turtles. No, no, no. Like you got <laughs> put it in their perspective, especially when you're like raising from a demographic that's totally different from you. I was one of the youngest entrepreneurs most of these investors had ever seen or invested in. Um, Most of them thought I was 30 and I was 23. That was in itself a whole experience and being a a first time female founder at 23, which was, was pretty crazy. But so I would really, I would really shift the attention towards being metrics driven around consumer behavior shifts, how the numbers don't lie that consumers are buying in these ways. There's, it's not like a touchy feely topic. It's consumers are buying from sustainable brands. That's what they want. That, that is the numbers. Those are the facts. So I would rely on those. And I could, I could talk circles around anyone who disagreed with me. I had every single fact in my back pocket. I forget a lot of them by this point, but Um, that, that was one of my biggest tips for, for fundraising as a cause oriented business. Like you really got to focus on the business opportunity. Don't focus on the feel good aspects. Um, however, I think the feel good aspects were like the icing on the cake of like, okay, I'll put my money into you because I believe I'm going to make a lot of money off of this. And I kind of feel good about it because it has this little, you know, nice aspect to it that, that it's a, a social impact company. Obviously being female founded was another icing on the cake of like, oh, I'm supporting a diverse founder, but it's not the only reason someone's going to invest. My advice on how much to raise is like, raise however much you can raise in a very efficient time period to be able to get to your next milestone. Don't get so caught up in the number. I remember going back and forth on like, oh, well, if I want to talk to VCs, I really need to be raising more like a million to a million five. Are we ready for that? I don't know. Oh, if I want to be raising from angel groups, they want me to be raising like between 250 and 500. I'm throwing out random numbers here. They may have changed by this point, especially with COVID. But um, I was so caught up in what everybody else wanted me to do. And, you know, all the investor feedback I was getting because everyone has an opinion on how much you should be raising. Everyone. I think at the end of the day, raise however much you need to get to your next milestone. And even with that, it's going to 100% change. We're not spending on anything that I thought I was going to spend in my financial projections because we're doing a completely different product. I mean, how could you ever plan for that? And that happens all the time at these early stages. 
my biggest advice to especially um, female and diverse founders, because I know it takes us a lot longer to raise on average, don't spend six to 12 months you know, running your business into the ground because you're just trying to get checks from investors who just haven't given you an answer after six coffee meetings. Move on, get to some traction with your business and then raise more later. Yeah, I know so much wisdom in there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> also avoid VCs at um, pre-seed angel stage. Like they'll want to talk to you because they want to start to seed the deals, but they're not giving you money. Yeah. They're not giving you money at that stage. I, I always try to give other other women this advice because I think it's, and other just founders in general, I think a lot of people fall in that trap and I definitely did. I think it was good to build relationships with VCs um, for if we decide to go VC down down the road, but I think we, we spent too much time on it. <laughs> Angels are a lot quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, this was, this was a great conversation. Um, where can people go if they want to learn more about your, your company? On um, my personal link, LinkedIn, Ashlyn Stansbury, mm-hmm. I post videos every week or every other week, really just highlighting our journey because myself and my co-founder, Carolina, are trying to be a resource for other female founders, other startups getting started who actually want to know what it's like to start a company. They don't want just like the BS PR updates. So we're providing a lot of cool content there on mine and Carolina's LinkedIn profile. And then on Instagram at because intelligence, we post so much fun, sassy lady boss content that just like lifts you up and super awesome. Um, And we also share a lot of uh, videos and the stories of kind of our journey as well. So those are probably the two best places to check us out other than our website, which is uh, becauseintelligence.com. Awesome. And you have a a product launching very soon, right? Yeah. (laughs) We are days away at this point. Um, Definitely keep keep an eye on that. We have almost 20 beta brands now. We totally oversubscribed our beta. So we're super excited about that. Um, But we're excited to launch. So that will be coming soon. Awesome. Well, congrats and good luck. Uh, And thanks for taking the time. (laughs) Thanks, Evelyn.